Welcome to Experts Only Podcast, sponsored by Clean Capital. You can learn more at cleancapital.com. I'm your host, John Powers. Each week, we explore the intersection of energy, innovation, and finance with leaders across the industry. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome back to Experts Only. I'm your host, John Powers. I have a conversation with fellow Buffalonian and founding executive director of the Solutions Project, Sarah Shanley Hope. Sarah uh, is leading an organization with a vision of 100% clean energy for 100% of the people and has an incredible track record to, sh- to help show how they're working to achieve both of those policies. And they invest in community-driven solutions that inspire people with stories for everyday heroes and build strategic relationships with allies across the industry. Sarah has a really fascinating bio, and, and you'll, you'll hear it come out in the conversations uh, and you also, she's working really to help drive change in communities that are helping to set the stage for those of us in the industry that are trying to do things like implement projects uh, or push towards that 100% renewable energy goal. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sarah, so happy to have you on Experts Only. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. I'm so excited to be here. As the listeners of this ep- of this podcast know, I'm a uh, a huge advocate for Buffalo uh, you you were born and raised in Buffalo before really starting a, an amazing career. You know, first of all, how is it being a Bills fan in Oakland? Oh my gosh! I mean, that John, you started with an assumption. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh no! <laughs> so I have so much Buffalo, and I hustle for Buffalo every chance I get. And my my age, I was in middle school when the Bills went to the four Super oh, Bowls in me. a row. Yeah. So I was scarred by the Buffalo public school superintendent every year promising the next day off of school and every <laughs> year being disappointed. <laughs> yeah. So so bad assumption. And football so, football's not my jam. Yeah. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well <laughs> tell me, so you went from Buffalo, you went to school and I mean, you went to a colder place in Minnesota, in Vassar. You know, what, in that track, like where along the way did you first really start getting interested in in the environment, in climate? And what was, what sort of triggered that? It's interesting. I, um, I wasn't, to be honest with you. I was super activated, like a lot of people growing up in Buffalo around social justice and human yeah. rights. Issues. You studied political science, and- right? I did. I studied yeah. political science in college. I went to city honors um, oh, for fifth through 12th grade. So had the kind of magnet school experience, which for those of your listeners who don't know, you know, there was a successful mandate where racial and gender and social integration was really prioritized, you know, back when I was in middle school and grade school and high school. And yeah, and when I ended up going to one of the best Schools, I think, in the country. Definitely in the country. Um, Yeah. And and those values were really instilled in me. But in terms of environmentalism, it wasn't until I was working for Van Jones at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights out here in California um, that I was introduced to, you know, the environment and climate through a lens of human rights and economic development. And, you know, I was in my mid twenties and my life 
changed dramatically. I was like, this is it. This is the call of my generation. This is, and of course, then I look back and, and put the pieces together in terms of Lois Gibbs and Love Canal and, you know, the hydropower around Buffalo, New York, Niagara Falls. And, and it was like destiny, you know, that (laughs) my, my roots, my roots, you know, had me um, connected to climate justice and, and to environmental justice. It's interesting though, to hear that you came from this. I mean, so many of our listeners came to climate change are now, are now coming to the sort of environmental justice side, the climate justice side of this. You actually came the other way. You came out of sort of human rights and interesting. I interesting. did. And now you're seeing these issues really becoming on the forefront. I mean, it's almost weekly you're reading a different story in the New York Times climate section or someone somewhere else about, you know, the effects of um, not just climate change, but the environment on, on low income communities, on birth rates for uh, minority families. Like what, you know, now you've been working on on COVID. Yeah. The proximity to pollution and the, the high instances of asthma um, in communities of color having a dramatically um, negative effect in terms of COVID. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've been working well. on this stuff for, you know, over a decade. Do you want to stand up and just scream like, Hey, mm-hmm. listen, I've been saying this to you people for 10 years. <laughs> yeah. For, you know, I'm, I'm in my early forties and, and I was politicized growing up in Buffalo. And so these issues and understanding the, the racial injustice, in the problem and the racial justice and the solutions, you know, has been since, since I was a kid, but no, my first response is welcome. Like (laughs) (laughs) right on time. We need you. Um, the, the, the transformation that's required is so great. And thankfully the leadership and the solutions are here, you know, and they're in frontline communities of color. So it's, it, more so my response is, is welcome. Let's, let's great. jump in and get to work. <laughs> <laughs> what was it like? So I sat at Van Jones' desk at the White House. Uh, he left just before I got there. Um, what was it like sort of working for him and, and uh, sort of the amazing things you guys were doing out West? Yeah, I, um, you know, I've learned so much from Van um, throughout my career. Um, everything from you know, effective communications. He's, there's a reason why he has a CNN show. It's, it's, he is, um, incredibly disciplined and skilled. And in addition to being naturally like predisposed to, to just reading the room and, um, and what he taught me, I think is, is listening is, is the first step to effective communications. Um, And then, yeah, the, the bringing together of these issues, um, that they're one and the same, especially when you think about who's impacted, you know, predominantly lower income, working families, right. communities of color impacted by all of these issues. <laughs> right. um, and then the third thing I learned from Van was, you know, the human need, let alone the strategic imperative to focus on solutions that you can't just hammer on the problem and solve it, you know, get to the other side. You really have to, yeah, hold that space for possibility and be creative and generative in uh, where you put your energy. 
Yeah, it's interesting. There's actually a piece out today from Anthony Leibowitz at Yale about climate, who does a lot of interesting about climate communications, about storytelling, because yeah. I think so many people try to wrap their heads around the bigger issue and can't get there. But if you can tell some personal stories, it can help drive change. But it's very that's unique. exactly right yeah so you went from so from minnesota were you, you worked for what did you do at cargo i saw cargo in your bio <laughs> it is in my bio so i went actually working for van and the ella baker center for human rights at the time you know and this is in early 2000s really was inspired and motivated to go to business school so i went yeah. to university of minnesota at the carlson school and ended up after business school uh, joining the corporate brand team at Cargill, oh, and it was fascinating. You know, I um, many parts of that story to share uh, in terms of my decision to go. I did I did not do kind of the traditional interview track, or you know, at business school those, right. those final months, you're like all going for brand manager jobs. That wasn't my my path, but. But Van encouraged me. He's like, "What? How many of us that are working in social movements and have the value system that I was coming with, you know, have the chance to to go into these major corporations?" And yeah. and so I, I I did. And my very first day on the job, I'm driving in my like, you know, I bought myself this like at auction thousand dollar little <laughs> golf and I'm driving listening to NPR and there on NPR is the launch of Rainforest Action Network's agribusiness campaign against Cargill. <laughs> and Van was actually on the board of RAN at the time. And it was yeah, it was fascinating. I was I was there for 18 months. That's interesting. I was there when Obama was elected. Oh wow. And I was there, I was uh, pregnant with my first daughter when I ended up leaving because Dan was going to the White House and he was assembling a team at Green for All and to make sure that that mission, yeah, that that mission carried forward and for a whole host of reasons, I took that leap. That's amazing. That's I say I ask that question because we actually have done a lot with Carval, which is the private equity family office at Cargill, and they had never invested in solar before. And now we've done mm. over 350 million with them in solar investment. They're sort of interest, interesting to see the shifts that's, that are happening on some of those larger corporate corporate yeah. players. So there's a lot of other things that's to talk phenomenal. about. That's phenomenal. Climate side. But, but and how important the families are in that, right? Huge. Yeah. Um, huge. Yeah. yeah. So, so Green for All, then Alliance for Climate Education. And then these four white guys are launching the Solutions Project with this amazing goal of 100% renewable energy. Was the um, environmental justice, climate justice piece part of the original mission? Or did you bring that with you as you sort of came in and helped take the leadership there? Yeah, I um, I definitely brought it with me. And I do make this joke. There were more white guys named Mark than any other demographic <laughs> when I started the Solutions Project. And thankfully, you know, they um, and the board at the time, you know, were they had a lot going for them that gave me signals that that we could bring in this equity racial equity vision and strategy one they were not playing small they understood right. that you know the moment that we're in and this is again 7 years ago 8 years ago required bold leadership and vision so 100% clean energy 
you know, Mike Rude, Sierra Club, Gavin Newsom when he was mayor of San Francisco, laughing them out of the room for this yeah. whole vision. So I was like, these guys are not afraid of transformation. Two, they already had a multidisciplinary approach. They understood that one theory of change was not going to win. There was no silver bullet. So they had this theory of change that business, science, and culture together brought different gifts and strengths and and flanks. Yeah. And then three, this this orientation towards storytelling, they hadn't yet focused there, but it was it was definitely a part of what brought them together. So when I came in, you know, it was it was really offering up a choice point for them. Do you want to add community as the fourth flank? Because right. here's my experience <laughs> right. and here's the the landscape and here's the hard lessons learned on green jobs. You got to have community at the center there with business, science, culture, if you want government to follow the yeah. leadership um, that's required. And, you know, you have to really signal to, you have to really signal in the vision that this isn't just about solar panels or, you know, wind farms. This is about people. And so 100% clean energy for 100% of people was the second half of the the vision that offered up as a choice. And then the third piece, you know, more on my marketing, putting my marketing hat from Cargill, from business school, is understanding really clearly that messengers matter more than the message. And who the spokespeople are, who the advocates are that are calling for this big, bold vision of 100% need to reflect the diversity of the coalition constituency population required to win. And so we started um, a grassroots grant-making program that, you know, the first intermediary grant-making fund focused on climate equity um, as our first program to to really redistribute the resources that we were able to raise. So they said yes, yes, and yes to those yeah. things, and we were off to the races. Yeah, that's. I want to talk about you first personally. Like you went from you know working in some pretty well established groups, and then you've got. I mean, I remember being on the phone for the first time with the solutions Pro- one of the marks from the solution projects when I was at the White House, and they were talking about 100, percent and everyone's like, "This is great, but you know, how are we going to get there?" Here we are in 2020, and one out of every three Americans lives in a state that's, that's that's there. So you you took the leap to jump in. Like, what was that sort of decision making process like for you personally? That yeah, we go all in on this. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, I mentioned you know I wasn't a clean tech bro. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it, it wasn't it wasn't my motivation, um, and I jumped in because. I put it out there of like, this is my point of view. This is what I've learned from my experience. And, you know, okay, guys. And it was, you know, overwhelmingly men at the time and, and all white people to be, to be totally um, transparent. Are you into this vision and this strategy that I'm putting forward? And, and if you're not, it's okay. You know, I wasn't the executive director at the time. I was a consultant. Um, by choice. I did. And that was a choice. I, I said to them, you're not ready to have an ED because you haven't sorted out 
what the ED would be leading towards yet. You have to sort that out first as founders. And, um, and if you want me, this is kind of what I bring. And if, if, if you don't want that totally fine, I can support, I can help you find the leader that, and, and they didn't, they, they said, yeah, let's go. And it's, you know, it's been really hard. So I don't want to say, I don't want to pretend that, that that personal journey was easy, you know, and I'm, I can share whatever you think is relevant to your listeners, but uh, more about just personally, I made a lot of mistakes when it, 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 you know, got to a place where, you know, we had to walk the walk before talking the talk and yeah. And, and seeing where I wasn't um, bringing them along the way um, with me at key moments, but I have to say all in all, we're, you know, there's still, a lot of love and trust. And now, you know, Joe Biden, candidate Biden just stated very clearly on the yeah. campaign trail a couple of weeks ago, his commitment to 100% clean energy. And one of, one of our first things together when I was a consultant was preparing and supporting Mark, Mark and Mark to, you know, Mark, Marco and Mark to go and meet with then VP Biden on a hundred percent. So it's, it's powerful to be at this, point and and I jumped in because yeah I felt I felt like I had the opportunity to apply a lot of really hard lessons learned from Green for All. So we talked a little bit offline about you know I've, I've talked on the show before about the, what the next 10 years look like and I want to come back to that but I first want to talk about you know you uh, your team has played such an instrumental role in setting the stage the last 10 years right to get us to a place where this is this is no longer, you know, a hope. Like we we've got, we've got a plan and a path to get there. Talk about like what are some of the programs you worked on from a grant making perspective or just from a, mm-hmm. a strategy perspective that helped set the stage to get us to where we are in 2020. Like how did the solutions project sort of grow and mature over that time? Yeah, I um, we actually have a, a case study that'll be coming out um, in the next month or so. But you know, I think our decision. Early on, kind of the first part of our three-part program, the invest part of invest, inspire, connect, right. was was huge. So it was, you know, first and foremost, like sharing power and recognizing that we had a role to play, but for us to be successful in that role of changing the conditions within which 100% was not just possible, but happening and happening at the scale that you just mentioned, one in yeah. three Americans, that we first had to, yeah, give up control, that it wasn't about, it wasn't just about the, the maps and the scientific pathway there. It was about like, investing in those frontline organizations who were doing the community organizing, doing the demonstration projects, doing the ground up power building that could affect key policy outcomes at the local and state level. Right. And then we could tell their stories through Avengers and, you know, mainstream media. Yeah. That that was really key. Yeah. For the, for and those that aren't fight, familiar, you know, yeah. Add some color to the Avengers piece. For, for, <laughs> so, people may not know so, about you guys, but they should. And this is a big, a big part of me saying yes <laughs> to the role of the Solutions Project. Um, Mark Ruffalo, the actor Mark Ruffalo, who plays the Hulk in the Avengers series, 
um, is one of the three marks um, that founded the Solutions Project. He is an incredible advocate on our board. He was definitely the one, you know, when I said, what about 100% clean energy for 100% of people? He was like, yes, community for 100% of people. If that's here, this this could be my political home. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. And so, you know, partnering with him throughout these years, then he brought in Don Cheadle, who plays War Machine right. in, in the Avengers series as well. Don's been on our board for the last two years. Yeah. So we've, we've really seen our role as like that culture led narrative strategy for, you know, transformative change and culture we define as like leadership. So that's a big part of your show here. It's like leaders that culture and then narrative again, it's like, how do you, how do you reach in to the popular imagination about what's possible? And there's no better way than through the Marvel. Right. Right. It's true machine. So, so, so many folks today, right. In the industry, you know, we're living in such a fascinating moment, both for climate, but for, for, uh, I think economic justice, environmental justice, climate justice, and people sometimes just don't know what to do, like how to act or what, you know, you saw a lot of companies making statements around sort of the black lives matter rallies. And then people would just turn them on Twitter and be like, well, look at your board, right. Look at all your leadership. Right. Yeah. So, you know, how do uh, what advice do you have for for some of those firms out there that are trying to get their footing, realizing they may have known this is something they they had to do, but for many of them, it just became, you know, it, it, it was sort of at the pile of the list of stuff they could execute for the day, but now it's rising up to a mission. Like, how do they begin to incorporate that? How do they take steps forward, begin to really, uh, inc- and I say this about clean capital too, we're exploring this weekly as, you know, with with, with part of our team. How do you begin to incorporate that into, into your company culture, into your company mission and everything? So. Yeah, I mean, this is also going to be a part of the case study that we share because that that is a part of our story is, you know, again, you start three white guys named Mark and now we're majority women of color led at the board and the staff, um, Black women in particular. And, and it is uh, an internal culture change as much as it is a material change out in the world and the material impact is the most important. Like that needs to be a company's or an organization's North Star. How are your business decisions actually improving the lives of Black, Indigenous, immigrant, you know, communities um, that have been like overwhelmingly left out. You know, I think the numbers in the clean tech and venture capital and solar industry are as, as you know, shocking and horrible as in the nonprofit sector, you know, yeah. less than 1% of philanthropic dollars go to women of color led organizations is, is just one of those statistics. And, and so I do think that like getting real about the current state and, and having courage to share power, to give up that power. And so DEI is the acronym diversity, equity, and inclusion that most, you know, majority white uh, organizations will use to talk about this, this transformation that is, you know, been happening for many, many years, but is particularly acute right now. 
And from our experience, you know, that's that's not the right sequencing, that it's really right. equity, diversity, inclusion, that you need to, as a white-led or white-dominant, particularly white male-dominant organization or company, you have to demonstrate an understanding and a commitment to equity um, in order to then attract the talent and retain that diverse talent to your team, that that it's not just lip service, you know, a day off for Juneteenth when you don't have Black leadership at your company is, is a, is a flag that you're not, you're not, you know, attending to the depth of change that's really, that's really required. And it is in the business interest. There are so many Harvard Business Review cases or McKinsey reports about the economic benefit, particularly in times of change and crisis and chaos, of racially and gender diversity in a company's leadership and, and team. Yeah. So, so recognizing that, honoring that, and for the Solutions Project, that was a big marker for our grant-making program, is we were honoring and recognizing the brilliance of women, women of color, leaders of color in the movement that that have been doing this work for a very long time, that the Solutions Project were were recognizing that for our for us to be successful, we actually had to honor their leadership, follow their leadership and and grow together. And and that's ultimately what happened. And um, you know, thankfully, we we have been falling through on the the D and the I part of that as well, right. diversity and inclusion. Well, that's interesting. So, if you look at now, look out the next ten years, you've got obviously you've got the commitments coming out, out of the Biden campaign, the amazing work re- recently done by your senator, uh, California Kamala Harris on the environmental justice bill. Yeah. What. What what are the stepping stones and building blocks? I guess that have to happen over the next two years, so that when we're we don't need to be having this conversation in twenty thirty, yeah. we have a diverse and, and, and engaged and um, uh, community within uh, clean energy climate. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also part of the the painful lessons learned from ARA from the Recovery Act in yeah. in Obama's first term, and I was at Green for all the time. And you were probably in the White House then. I, I was not yet. I had just gone to the Pentagon when it started. Okay. But, but, okay. Yeah, but beginning, I, so, I actually talk a lot about Aura on here because I feel it's, it was such a an important piece, but there is so much to learn from that that we need to implement next round. Yeah. And I think that's where we're like, like really learning those hard lessons yeah. and not making the same mistakes in these coming two years. And, and frankly, it's regardless of the outcome, it's, it's looking local and ground up. So, you know, if you're focused on equitable climate solutions, energy access and energy democracy from the ground up and across the country, getting from one in three Americans living in a place committed to 100% clean energy to one in three Americans actually having their apartments or homes or small businesses powered by affordable clean energy, like to close that gap. It's really about on the ground implementation of these solutions and, and the leadership there are overwhelmingly in communities of color 
you know, again, people closest to the problem are the closest to the solutions are the first of the solution. So, you know, the more. I'll give you an idea. Like what I mean, it's a case study of where we've been trying to find ways to address this and running into roadblocks, right? So what exists today that didn't exist even through really three or four years ago is the idea of community solar. Yeah. How do you bring on LMI subscribers and set a mandate, you know, within your, if we're going to acquire and own a project, we want 50% of it owned, you know, and, and subscribe with LMI subscribers. Like New yeah. Jersey has that, or is trying to implement that mandate today. But the tax equity players that finance these deals won't finance that have LMI subscribers. Yeah. So how do you yeah. then find ways to incorporate, is there, if there is a new recovery act, which I imagine it will be, you know, ensuring yeah. that they're incentivized, right, or for mandated, Right to start to do that because I feel like that has been you know something we talk a lot about. But then when we we look at like we've actually looked at deals that have that, no one will buy into it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm you're going to have the expertise on what will move market rate capital. From my from my perspective, it's like again, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. That that the solutions are all around us. We've got decades of information and experience around community reinvestment act and right. now green development zones. So there's like, you know, there's there's a whole spectrum of public private capital, philanthropic capital like braiding that is happening. We're working with a few corporate leaders in this space who who are saying we get that the offset market is I'm not going to curse again on your show, but you know, it's not <laughs> legit. It's like yeah. moving paper from one side to the next. Like we want to actually invest in projects that are going to have these additional benefits of good job creation, of of alleviating the health and economic burdens in impacted communities, communities of color. So we're, you know, Microsoft just had its big public announcement a couple of weeks ago, and it has an, a clear equity and like actual community development commitment. So I think those are, you know, again, when you're thinking about braiding different capital streams, how does philanthropy step up? You know, yeah. right now, climate funders are way, way, way over indexed, not just on white male leadership, 80% of, of philanthropy going to white male EDs, it's also way over-indexed on a policy theory of change. Right. So what happens when some of that, some of those dollars move into pre-development on projects or, um, you know, on community solar, or even we've got incredible grant. And I, and I should say, we've got grantee partners in some of the least likely least resource places who have been figuring this out and it is hurting cats and it is you know down to the 11th hour push buffalo is such a great example um school 77 the the community solar project there first in in the state in new york you know they were braiding not just three sources of capital philanthropic public private but also you know historic sites Right. You know, (laughs) all sorts of things. But we also have Reverend Leah Woodbury, New Alpha Community Development Corporation in rural South Carolina, where, you know, Florence, South Carolina, where all LMI African-American subscribers to a utility scale project that, that the utility really drove. 
And it's been in operation for more than a year, you know, groundswell out of Washington, D.C. We funded their work um, in LaGrange, Georgia, um, for, you know, solar development on affordable housing. Like there are... By the way, the person um, I had at my desk after Van was Michelle, who runs Groundswell. Oh, yeah, Michelle Moore. Michelle's one of my very good friends. all together a lot. Excellent. (laughs) Tell her I said hello. I mean, that's a great, that's a great example. It's like, it's not, we don't have to dig very far to find mm-hmm. people who have a part of the puzzle here. Yeah. It's just understanding that we need to look in a different direction than we have been looking in so the what, past. If there was a, a call to action for our listeners, right. Who could yeah. project.org or, or whatever their sort of key next steps are, what would you tell them to do? I mean, this is this is something that um, other than donate, on of course, you definitely donate. Yes, <laughs> we definitely want you to donate to the Solutions Project. Hit me up directly. Um, <laughs> we we uh, we can put big money to really big big impact through through the Solutions Project and our network of you know dozens of of frontline grantee organizations. But you know, Don Cheadle on our board frequently has this quote, which is a too short. Quote. So I'm a I'm a you know 90s hip hop head and um, <laughs> called you know get in where you fit in and I think that's important right now right. I, I see a lot of particularly white environmentalist leaders who are new to the racial justice conversation feeling overwhelmed like they have to take on they're used to being number one at the top of leadership. And so that's the only thing that they think they can do is like lead the charge. Well, there are so many ways to lead, so many ways to lead. And sometimes that's calling the person that you have authentic relationship with who's a few steps ahead on the path. Um, And again, the path, I would say, the call to action is look out where it's working locally, ground up, and where there are examples of people's lives improving through climate solutions and figure out, you know, get in where you fit in there um, because the return on your dollar, on your hour, on your energy is so great. And we welcome you (laughs) to come and join us in, in moving money, media momentum. Yeah. To frontline climate solutions. That's your branding, yeah. branding background right there. <laughs> That's a Van Jones training right there. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> so I cha- challenge our listeners to go to solutionsproject.org. You can get all the stuff and uh, you can definitely donate there. Sarah, one, one question I ask all folks on the show, you know, you go back to yourself coming out of city honors mm. and sit down and have, have coffee. You know, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, don't be so afraid. Oh, that's great. Don't be so afraid. There is, Mistakes are human and every day. And uh, the worst mistake is, yeah, not doing something or saying something that your heart is is really calling you to do. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Tom, for having me on. I want to thank the staff at the Solutions Project and thank our producers, uh, Carly Batten and, and Courtney Flynn, for helping to put this together. As always, you can get more episodes at cleancapital.com. And uh, we really look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening in today's conversation. Find more episodes on cleancapital.com, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. We look forward to continuing our conversation on energy, innovation, and finance with you.